Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast number 201, there's a lot of malicious activity happening in the repository space, I guess. And it's quite scary when you think about it, because a lot of people that turning to these quick infrastructure ones like Node.js, like these quick frameworks that are easy to get websites up, but some of the dependency trees on them are, are massive. And in this case, private IP was a massively used de- uh, dependency for thousands of other code bases. In the past 20 years, bug hunting has transformed from a hobby or maybe even a felony to a full-time profession for tens of thousands of talented software engineers around the globe. Thanks to the growth in private and public bug bounty programs, men and women with the talent can earn a good living by sniffing out flaws in the code for applications and increasingly the physical devices that power our 21st century global economy. What does that work look like? And what platforms and technologies are drawing the attention of cutting-edge vulnerability researchers? To find out, we sat down with the independent researcher known as Sick Codes. In recent months, he's gotten attention for a string of important discoveries. Among other things, he discovered flaws in Android television sets manufactured by the Chinese firm TCL. And he was part of a team, along with last week's guest, John Jackson, that discovered and fixed a serious server-side request forgery flaw in a popular open source security module known as Private IP. In this interview, SickCodes and I talk about his path to becoming a vulnerability researcher, the paid and unpaid research he conducts looking for software flaws in common software platforms and Internet of Things devices, and some of the impediments and challenges that still exist for independent researchers who wish to report vulnerabilities to corporations. We also talk about what's in his pipeline for 2021. SickCodes, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. No worries, man. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so obviously, sick codes wasn't the name your mom gave you. This is your handle, and uh... <laughs> yeah, so it's it's kind of like um, I literally just made it yeah. as a website because I've seen the, the the top level domain dot codes, and it was kind of like, oh, what am I going to be writing about? You know, like the, yeah, I was good. literally using yeah just the name as a, as a website to put my code online when I'm not at the computer, so I could do it on other computers and things like that, or on the yeah. phone. You know, when you log into servers. I just have my notes in front of me pretty much, but uh, I ended up doing some stuff on top of that. So sick.codes is the site and and you've done, you've published a fair amount of original security research. You know, people can hear your voice and know that you're from down under, but tell us a little bit about how you kind of came to do vulnerability research and discovery, kind of your path to InfoSec. Those are often very interesting stories. Well, funnily enough, I've, I've been doing like web stuff and uh, what I mean by that is like literally just, you know, creating websites with WordPress. And this is, you know, going on from about 2012. So back then WordPress probably still is, but it was a bit of a security nightmare. So that, you know, a lot of the websites would always get hacked. Um, You'd end up with defaced websites from like ex-government or um, 
military team or cyber militia from some country. And they would just deface your website or they would literally drop roots in root shells in there and things like that. And yeah, once you understand what's going on and stuff like that, it kind of like piques your interest. You're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. You know, how do they do that? How do they get in? Why doesn't everyone else know about it? And that just led down to, you know, knowing where to patch holes and things like that, especially when it comes to servers. You know, like first thing you do, fail to ban. Obviously, it's a lot different now because everyone's in the cloud. But back then, it was like, you know, you buy like your big, you buy your server or your dedicated rack or whatever. And then you just install yeah. fail to ban and that's it. Yeah. If you don't have it, then, you know, you just don't have it. And people can log in millions of times. So uh, WordPress was kind of your entree into penetration testing, cybersecurity, web application security. Uh, yeah, that and a bit of e-commerce and things like that. I yeah. just, you know, dabbled between different platforms like that, OpenCart, Magento, and seeing the different problems with them, especially Magento, because there was a part where Magento actually became pretty much nulled. I don't know. I don't want to offend any Magento users, but there was a part where every version before this is insecure. So it's kind of like, and yeah. how do you bring all those websites up to scratch? Like, you know what I mean? Like on the button, right. you've got to be, you have to have someone there all the time. Well, there's so much so deadwood, right? There's so many just abandoned or, you know, lightly managed websites out there. Right. And yeah. there's and just such a long tail of those. Yeah. I was going to say, you can definitely see them on like, for example, Shodan, you can find kernels, like really old kernels that have got like old servers with hundreds of CVEs attached to them that could easily be broken. It's kind of, it kind of feels like you're, um, like you're pushing stuff uphill. You're not getting anywhere, but it's not like it's, it's more of a risk management thing, which I've come to understand, which I didn't know really before that it was all about, you know, going to be 100% secure, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more about a risk thing. You and I have spoken a number of occasions over the last you know, few months um, about a, a, a bunch of different discoveries that you've either made yourself or been a part of. Um, mm. The first, I think, was the TCL uh, smart TV vulnerability. That was one that you discovered. Um, John Jackson ended up being part of the team that you put together to kind of bring it, bring it to the public's attention. But um, talk about how you came to look at those TCL smart TVs and kind of what you found under the hood. Yeah, sure, man. Uh, the first one I actually found just prior to that was a private internet access vulnerability. And that was, I don't want to bore you guys with the story, but that was like the first time I've actually been dealing with a company on my own, you know, like, like kind of like feeling like David and Goliath. And then getting into a battle like with the guy saying like, is this a bug or not you know, back and forth for a couple of months. And that one ended up getting disclosed. I was pretty excited after that and thought like, you know, I want to get some more CVs under my belt as you do and came up to some hardware stuff that I was really interested in. But the TV stuff actually came through from picking up TV sticks. So like these little tiny TV sticks that you plug in your TV and, you know, like your Amazon fires and things like that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but with no access control, fully they come pre-rooted with absolutely no like it's just a disaster waiting to happen. I was actually planning on writing a proof of concept worm for that because you could literally write code that would go from one stick to the next stick. You know, for example, you had a whole building full of people with the TV sticks in them. You could jump through everyone's network because once you get into the network, you're on the you get on the router because we've got default passwords, and then you could just the broadcast and find the next one, et cetera, and just keep going through like it's like a daisy chain. Then come the real TVs. I thought, well, I've had a crack at this TV. Why don't I have a go at, you know, someone else's real TV? Because this is just like little bark, little sticks. But I ended up finding out pretty much exactly the same. It's just one's 
inside the TV that you can't take out. And the other one is one that you plug in later. And the same chip as well. They've got, you know, Rock Chip, you've got AM Logic, you've got a whole bunch of different manufacturers or uh, Broadcoms, probably the equivalent. From the TCL one, I actually ended up calling my buddy and um, we had a look at his TV. And within five minutes, we found a whole bunch of ports open. And then we investigated the ports and found one of them was delivering files over the web browser, which is, which is weird. And I made the point at the time, which was, you know, when have you ever needed to do that? as a developer, because I'm a developer myself, you know, I do projects. When have I ever had to expose all of the files on a system other than, yeah, like a natural FTP server, but it ends up being that they deliberately did that for an, for some reason. It could be for any reason. It's There's obviously a reason why it's there, but the reason that I believe that, that it was there is that it's being used for either information gathering for one of the other apps on the on the system, or it's being used as part of their support tool, which they've attested to on multiple occasions as being a remote access tool um, that a technician can come and fix your computer through the internet instead of actually coming out. And that's kind of like something to think about given that they're a lower price TV than comparable models on the market. And that's worth noting as well is that the market they're actually dominating the market. TCL is, yeah. I mean, they're the, yeah. they're the third most popular brand in the United States. And my guess is if if you were to talk to most consumers in the US and say, who's TCL? They have no idea. <laughs> I, <laughs> actually, I really don't. Yeah, I, I had no idea either yeah. until I'd seen one. I, I didn't know either. And then came across this one and that was it. And it was the one, it was an Australian model. And that was something worth noting as well that we discussed earlier as well was the Australian model was affected, whereas the US model wasn't. And I've seen this recently as well, um, looking at, for example, um, Xiaomi or Xiaomi, which is the way you write or say it or write it, however you want to say it. The company that recently was listed on a, I don't know the list, it was like 10 companies that um, are kind of like banned, is that right? The, the US government is you know, basically saying you, know, that you, you can't buy products from these vendors, yeah. Yeah, for, for use that, in government facilities, yeah. They don't do that for the, yeah, that doesn't affect consumers and what like big box stores can offer or Amazon can sell to consumers, but you kind of think it should. <laughs> yeah, it <definitely laughs> like if the government should. doesn't think it's safe to use it in government facilities, like, well, a lot yeah. of those government employees have homes and, you know, increasingly right. their home is part of their office too. So, but whatever, that's, you know, yeah, who am I? That's a really good point. <laughs> um, I was going to say on top of that, the, the the Xiaomi stuff was the the router that I was looking at recently didn't have a, an American or United States privacy policy in a list of drop down countries. And I thought, well, they're not making it for the US market. And so the difference between the US model of the TV in relation to TCL makes me think like maybe the maybe the US version is like an advertisement, and the all of the other ones are like they're they're satellites. Yeah. Or um, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but the support tool isn't present in the US models. And that's that's kind of like, that's kind of intriguing. Yeah. And, and so it's interesting that it doesn't. It's interesting that the version of the Android TCL Android TV that's sold in North America doesn't have this particular application that was a, basically a backdoor. And, and you do wonder why that is. I mean, from a risk standpoint, it doesn't really make much difference, does it? That's right. I mean, whether or not the owner of the, the private keys for those 
you know, those sessions that were generated between the support staff, alleged support staff and the TV itself or the customer on the phone, I guess, is kind of like who's, who's holding the keys to, you know, it's the certificate authority, who's holding the keys to the Let's Encrypt certificates, who's holding the keys yeah. to SecTigo and all that sort of stuff. So just matter, just a matter of trust and do you trust those keys in the hands of someone, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, your experience raises a couple of really interesting points. First of all, you know, and this came up in my conversation with John as well, but, you know, one of the kind of shocking mm -hmm. things was how unprepared TCL was to deal with your report to them that the company, even though it's a multi, multi-billion dollar international company, again, the third largest, you know, maker of smart television sets mm -hmm. in the United States and the even bigger supplier in countries like China and India, um, they had no kind of security, you know, product security team or function internally. And, and so when you went to report this, it was like there was, there was no one home. Yeah. So originally when we first, when we first reported it, like I had, I had some serious trouble getting in contact with them. And if there's anyone listening that, that is a professional in that sort of realm, I'd say communication, just, just be on the phone or be on the things. Because when we had trouble contacting them, there was massive uh, questions, you know, like why are they not speaking to us and things like that. And it was kind of like spiraling, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But the, the initial contact was very difficult to get. You know, we messaged them on Twitter. We're messaging them on the live chat on the website. We're saying, like, can you guys get someone to call us or can we forward you the report? is the security team available and a lot of them were just going onto deaf ears and eventually we did get onto someone <clears throat> like an associate of someone who ended up getting onto engineering at tcl so engineering at tcl was great they fixed the vulnerability in, a, in around about one day they knew exactly what they're talking about but then they just gave up on conversation once we submitted a second vulnerability which was an update update uh, malicious update style vulnerability where you could you know, you know you get back not packed or you get back um you know, you could, you could do malicious updates and whether or not it's yourself doing it or a malicious APK, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's a pretty big vulnerability. And they actually yeah. agreed that it was a vulnerability, which is important too, because a lot of times the manufacturers might not agree that it's a vulnerability, so, which they did at the start. But what we found was talking to the companies, they were actually very, once they, you know, they get onto a topic that you, you say, they actually listen to everything that you say and they will, most of the time actually implement literally verbatim or verbatim exactly what you've told them. So we told them, you know, you should probably look at getting a subdomain up and you could probably look at doing a, at a security at email. And at the moment they're currently got a src.tcl.com, which is the security research center, I believe, or resource center. And then they've also got security at tcl.com, which works. So that's two other things we mentioned to, to suggest to them, which makes me kind of like, um, totally, I feel like I'm doing something, you know, important. Yeah, you know, getting absolutely. getting a massive multi-billion-dollar company, yeah, 250 kind companies, of get, get off the dime, yeah, yeah, to actually to actually pull, you know, pull weight and and get kicking on. But the, the the one of the earliest responses we got was, oh, we don't actually have the security team ready yet. Uh, we're getting that in March. Can we talk about this then? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's happening. Wow, it happens now. Yeah. 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 Uh, it does make you wonder, uh, they, they shouldn't have to have, you know, sick codes coming to them and saying, here are the things you should be doing to have a proper 
product security response team, um, yep. this should maybe be a little bit more consistent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, it's kind of like, kind of feels like you're making a big impact, but it's also like, kind of like highlights the importance of third party, third party research on, on the industry as a whole, or any industry yeah. really. A lot of people can, you know, individuals, no matter where they're from or however, as long as they have internet access, can make a really big impact on companies that they think are just the biggest companies in the world. In this case, the second largest of TV manufacturers, well, which everyone has. I mean, what is your approach to to vulnerability discovery? You've, you've the the stuff you've written about is is interesting, and it's also pretty diverse. I mean, you know, smart TVs, and you know, obviously, um, you know, embedded systems, but. But you've done a lot of other really interesting work as well. So how do you how do you go about figuring out what you're interested in or where you want to start poking around? Well, a lot of the stuff that I find vulnerabilities in is generally to do with, you know, just uh, just files or <clears throat> systems to do with Linux. So like anything that's Linux related or process related or like you know race conditions or resource assignments, it's pretty and much everything like that. these days. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's quite broad. So I mean, all of the the IoT stuff, you know, you, not not like ESP thirty two. You've got MicroPython, thing, things that are like derivatives. It's kind of like really easy to find vulnerabilities and stuff that's kind of like a minimized version of a real desktop computer, which is what's happening with Android and, the, and obviously the TV. Sorry, the TV. It kind of like magnifies all the vulnerabilities. They stick out at you a bit more because there's a lot less stuff on there. There's no you know, there's way less processes, way less um, things to look for. So it makes it really quite easy to find vulnerabilities that stick out almost immediately. And another thing is, is it's really easy to find stuff in relation to Linux and, and shell and, and all that sort of stuff is when you find code that doesn't look, doesn't quite look right. It's kind of like the syntax is off or they, they use, in my case, for example, they use two spaces on shell code, which a lot of people do, or they use tabs. Straight away, I'm thinking, oh, this guy or girl or whatever is going to make a problem that I'm going to find later because I can tell straight away that they, you know, they haven't looked at enough shell code of others to, to figure out what's the syntax. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened with the latest one that I found, for example, with uh, a company called No Magic by Dassault System in the EU, uh, France. So that's 3DS very very sensitive and little did i know at the time of discovery um which i'll mention right now is through google i actually just literally googled a string which was i think ch mod uh, 777 etc environment slash etc slash environment and that actual google search turned up the ch mod 777 those are that has to do with the the read write permissions on on a particular uh, particularly sensitive um, file yeah. in a in a Linux operating system. Yeah, that's right. There's other permissions like you know seven 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 or like you know six four four and things like that. But some of them are obviously vulnerable, which is the seven 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 one. And if it's in a you know critical part of the of the code or critical part of the system, for example, the system environment file, then there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And I ended up finding this 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 company via Google and basically went in and had a look and straight away I seen the vulnerability. Yeah, flicked them a quick email and, and eventually got solved. It took about three months to get solved. What's really amazing is like, as you know, because you do a lot of work with like bug bounty programs. I mean, just there's been a real um, like sea change in the last 10 or 15 years around, around this. And many companies, particularly in the technology space, you know, have set up bug bounty programs have created more or less kind of front doors for researchers to come to when they find problems and, and even, you know, kind of reward them for their work. And it's just sort of accepted, like, 
you know, people are going to, yeah. people are going to check out your product. They're going to find problems and you want to, you want to create a way for them to report them to you and let them know that you've received it and that you're working on it. Um, and, and maybe That's even right. that there's some kind of, you know, reward for them for their effort. Um, and so it's always really shocking to me to, to, to come across really huge affluent companies in particularly in really sensitive sec sectors like you know defense industrial base mm. that seem to have not caught the clue train on this <laughs> yeah and, I, and, and you're absolutely right man there's a lot of companies out there that um for example i use i use a database called uh there's one by disclose.io and that's a big database of like thousands of companies with, with vulnerability programs that I sort through and you can actually find companies in there that don't have, what are they called? Um, vulnerability disclosure programs. And then you can find companies that, yeah. that do. And the companies that don't, you know, you see them and they're massive companies. I'm like, they've got a lot of, they've got a massive budget. There's no reason why they couldn't just jump on bug crowd or hacker one and actually put up a bounty or run their own private bounty because there's nothing to lose. I mean, it's, it's either that or the vulnerability gets sold on the black market, which yeah. makes it even worse. So giving someone a proper bounty price, I mean, you know, like yeah, a, that's the thing. Like, you don't even yeah. need to you don't even need to functionally stand up these programs because yeah, HackerOne or Bug Bug Crowd. I mean, there there are companies out that will basically do everything, do all the heavy lifting for you, and have the community of researchers that are ready to go. You just need to kind of basically write a check. Yeah, there's literally armies of of people that come through your website to 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 pen test it once you get on them. Yeah, it's quite fun. Well, this all came about. Uh, this all kind of came to a to a head with the work that you did on um, with with John Jackson on the uh, NPM private IP. We're talking about kind of the, you know, the impact of some of the you know problems that are rooted in the source code itself or in the in the you know open source module itself. And that was one where yeah. we had a, a really commonly used module um, that was just badly badly written and didn't really do the job that people thought it was doing. <laughs> yeah, talk about, talk about the work you did there. Cause John, John kind of brought you on to help fix that problem. Cause the guy who wrote the module seemed to not really have the skills to be able to address the problem that he had created. Yeah. So I think it's a typical, um, the typical uh, scenario or situation where the original maintainer has moved on to other things and, someone else comes along to maintain it. And the guys or the girl who was originally maintaining it, they're like, you know, yeah, you can submit patches and fix it, but they haven't got enough time to actually devote to, to actually bringing it up to scratch. Cause they probably haven't, they haven't probably haven't used the program that they're, they're trying to fix or that they maintain for quite some time. So the, this vulnerability was, was actually huge. You got a 9.8 on the CVSS score, which is top of every, which is max of everything apart from 10. And it's so widely used. I think we found millions of uh, downstream packages or, or sorry, a few thousand downstream packages. Or I can't remember, maybe it was 50,000 or something. Downstream packages, direct descendants of this one that would use it. But also an incalculable number of websites that actually use this version of the software. Doesn't that make you wonder or worry a little bit about like how many other NPM private IP yes. type modules are out there with similar types of problems. Yeah. I was actually considering just going through hundreds and hundreds of, of packaged repositories because, you know, that includes like Ruby. We're talking like any JavaScript project, any, you know, NPM package, all that stuff that has, you know, people can come in and write a, a Python pip as well. People can write their own programs. And there's been 
tons of malware found in those as well. The people submitting malware or they're overriding old packages with malware or they're doing typo packages and things like that. There's a lot of malicious activity happening in, in the repository space, I guess. And it's quite scary when you think about it because a lot of people they're turning to these, you know, quick quick infrastructure ones like Node.js and, you know, for example, I would say Django, but Django is up there. Like these quick, quick frameworks that are easy to get websites up. But some of the times, some of the dependency trees on them are, are massive. And in this case, private IP was a massively used uh, dependency for thousands of other code bases. But yeah, there's an actually incalculable number that we just never know that how many people were actually vulnerable to SSRF. And what's safe to assume, I would think, sick codes is that if if you, you know, are are hip to it, if you discovered this stuff, then then nation state groups that do nothing all day long except look for ways into vulnerable organizations and governments uh, have probably stumbled across these uh, vulnerabilities as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I see it as kind of like a man. Oh, sorry, like a a, a, a humans. Humans, like a virus in numbers, is kind of the Bitcoin thing. Strength in numbers, I think it is. How many people are in X country or Y country that have got the power and the capability to be looking for this sort of stuff versus, you know, a foreign actor, their country? If they, how many people have they got looking at? It? And in some cases, there's there's a massive difference of the amount of of um, you know firepower for, for, per se of people that are actually able to discover things like this. And, you know, if you talk about, um, you know, like just, a, just it's just kind of, kind of like, uh, kind of eerie. <laughs> Think about it that way. I don't know. We, we yeah. were talking about the um, no magic uh, vulnerability that you discovered. I know that um, there's been, there's been a little bit of progress on that. So what's, what's going on with that? Um, that was a, again, a configuration error, but a pretty serious one that, you know, coupled with, um, local access on a in a sensitive environment could be really damaging. So, so what's happening with that? Yeah, so this actually this started like I said a while ago, but it came to fruition just about the time SolarWinds stuff came up because I was thinking at the time, hang on, it, it actually drew me back to it, thinking this this company might be actually be pretty big, and I didn't really know that much about Dassault at the time, but turns out the customers of the No Magic teamwork cloud program that I found the vulnerability in were in the hundreds and they were all like government organizations, you know, NASA, Raytheon, all the, it's actually designing software for 3d um, development. And it's kind of like GitHub for, or Git for design. And also another, Cat, another thing yeah. was business processes. Right. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. And it was actually, I wrote, seen an article that it was used during F35 deployment or development. Sorry. So, the fact that it was being used to design that sort of high level, you know, high, high um, security plane or information, et cetera. It made me think like, there's a lot of people out there that have this vulnerability. <clears throat> and only recently, I think in the last week or two, they actually released a tool kind of like with the SolarWinds stuff is there's a tool to identify the vulnerability and, and how, it, if it's affecting you. And I can see from the code that they wrote that some of the codes from when I, um, when I sent them emails about it. So, yeah, so it's kind of, kind of cool to see that, you know, like a, a bit of code, like a couple of strings from, from an email are going into, I think it's been, but if someone's inside your system, they can, they can see, they can see that straight away. Oh, did did they offer crap. any explanation for how, why they needed you to tell them about this? I mean, it was, again, I was writing their documentation. You know, you'd, you'd think somebody along the line would have looked at that and said, Whoa, man, that's, that's why are we giving these permissions yeah. in this directory? 
that is really it's really interesting like a really strange question because uh, it's a scary question because a lot of that code was like really lax and like i said earlier is when i see bash or shell code that's really missing quotes or missing stuff like brackets or the wrong types of quotes the wrong brackets or wrong style of writing you can tell that it's written by someone who might leave mistakes and in this case there was quite a few mistakes like the full home directory of the of the admin user was 7770 all recursive files as well and a couple other places it was all a bit messy but you'd think that all of the people that were pasting this in which are for example sysadmins at boeing sysadmins at airbus sysadmins at nike like all of these huge companies none of them noticed and said hey guys teamwork cloud you might want to change that that uh permission on that because that's quite permissive i'm surprised nobody actually mentioned it and it'd been there for a couple of years literally yeah that's i think it was four or five years yeah it, it all kind of speaks to the culture of security question you know this is the this is the stuff that microsoft kind of dealt with back in the early you know millennium period with the trustworthy computing memo you know this sort of top-down commitment to orient around in you know security um I mean, it just, it strikes me that very few companies have, have had that type of transformation. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, of course, Microsoft didn't get it all right, but they, you know, I think their, their commitment to it was, was sincere and they did make a lot of progress, but I, uh, you know, you right. always come across, you know, it's just so frequent to come across companies again, even big companies and very sensitive verticals that, you know, are, are really still playing fast and loose with, with this stuff and in a way that just kind of makes your head spin. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that risk situation where you need you need some you need you know the knowledge is there, but it's maybe not the right spot. And then kind of like everyone needs to have the knowledge. It's really hard to get that across. And yeah, I'm not in that space and of, of you know disparaging knowledge, but it's it's hard to get things secure and stuff should be audited, especially when they merge. You know, two companies merge. There's without a doubt you're gonna to have to audit that code and audit it to the T. Yeah, because it didn't look like that happened with this situation. Currently. So, so what's on uh, what's on SickCode's uh, uh, stovetop? Like, what what's in the pipeline for you in terms of the research that you're doing, and and uh, what are your plans for 2021? Yeah, so I'm probably looking at a few larger companies like TCL and other not other hardware products like that, but I'm looking at you know all sorts of you know, high use platforms and high use desktop versions of apps and things like that that get they get a lot of traction and a lot of use and generally because there's a lot of people working on those apps they've got a lot of mistakes and so it's quite easy to find stuff in that some of the time they've got you know some of the time they've got um tons of vulnerabilities or some of the time they're just so hard that it's not even worth looking at but yeah it's just a lot i've been looking at a couple of programs and stuff and and i've been working on a couple of projects or private programs as well the approach like the rough approach is you can see from my vulnerabilities that i found it's kind of like stuff that I use or stuff that I come into contact with, but I'm trying to be a bit more proactive and find programs or find software that I can destroy or find vulnerabilities in. But also, um, yeah, I've been working on helping, you know, building tools and stuff to do for other people to do it. Like I've got a couple of GitHub projects where you can launch like a fully blown, a full blown Mac um, in Docker. Uh -huh. And then we've got the iPhone one now. So there's an iPhone in a Docker container that I put up and then we're, one of the researchers which is unbelievable he built a uh so it's i don't know if you're everyone knows corellium it's the pretty much building like a budget a free 
GNU Rallyum kind of. It's kind of funny, but yeah, it's he had built a frame buffer for the iPhone, um, and that's iOS 14. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah, it's Very literally cool. upcoming. It's, yeah. It's historic yeah so there's going to be literally docker iphones coming soon so well, i've got we've got one already but it doesn't have a screen on it so it's That's running in the full ios yeah kernel x and u qemu and everything it's just that it's not there's a screen a touch screen and that's coming there's a guy called jonathan he's from uh, the left security it's unbelievable wow so you so so potentially some some interesting new discoveries around ios well, it's it's the same as Corellium, but that's super expensive. And yeah, right, right. Invite yeah. only, but it, but it, more eyes looking at it. As I was saying earlier, yeah, yeah it's it, it could be a ton more iOS stuff coming out. Yeah, the wisdom of the crowd. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hey, man, Sick Codes, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. I'm sure we'll be talking again and hearing from you again in uh, 2021. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. It was really really fun to be here. Sitcodes is an independent security researcher living on the planet Earth. You can find him online at sick.codes or using the Twitter handle Sitcodes. <laughs>